Okay, let's get started. I'll open this uh, with prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. We are dependent upon him tonight. Uh, we want to look at church history and use our brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before us as mirrors, even those who were uh, heretics, Lord. We want to use them as mirrors so that we can learn and that we can change now, Lord. They can't change, but we can. So we want to look at their lives and see what they did right and emulate that and see what they did wrong. And we want to avoid those errors. And we need you to help us if we're going to be able to pull that off. So we ask you to do that uh, tonight. Guide our discussion for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we're going to be talking about revelation and theology. When I say revelation, I don't mean the book of Revelation, because some of you were really excited, like, oh, let's study the book of Revelation. <laughs> Everyone loves to study the book of Revelation. Revelation uh, is what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, what is revelation? Revelation is what God says. God has many thoughts. God has thoughts and ideas, and they are above us, and they are beyond us. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's thoughts are above us, and they are far beyond us. His thoughts are so far beyond us because God is infinite. God is infinite. Now, we use that word, infinite, which means he is, the, the N is a negative, which means he's not. He is not finite. He is infinite. Um, he is other, and that's what the word holy means. The word holy means that God is different. He's set apart from us. He's different from us. He's in a category all by himself. His thoughts are above us. His thoughts are beyond us. But he has spoken some of them to us. Thank God he has spoken some of his thoughts to us. Thank God he has revealed some of his thoughts to us. He didn't have to, but he did. He has spoken to us. So revelation is what God shares. It's what God says. It's what God puts into human language. And so God has lots of thoughts that he doesn't share with us. And they are just, well, God's thoughts. <laughs> they belong to him. They are unspoken, unheard, never shared with creation. But he hasn't been stingy with his thoughts. God has revealed some of his thoughts to us in his word. So revelation is what God says to us in his word. John Calvin said that when God talks to us, he uses baby talk. Now think about that. When God speaks to us, he uses baby talk. Here's how Calvin said it. For who is so devoid of intellect as not to understand that God... In so speaking, lisps with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of a being God is as accommodate the knowledge of him, of him to our feebleness. In doing so, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. So when God speaks to us in his word, when God speaks to us in the Bible, it's as if he is using Baby talk. It's as if when we open this book, it's as if God is saying to us, God, God, goo, goo. <laughs> like a mother holding her infant and looking into its eyes and saying sweet gibberish to her precious little child. God has to speak baby talk to us precisely because he is so holy and different and other and infinite and so far beyond us. He's so other that he has to stoop down to us when he speaks to us in his word. And it's like a mother speaking baby talk to her three-month-old. Have you ever thought about reading the Bible that way? 
When you open God's word to read it, it's like God from his perspective is saying, Gaga goo goo to you. That's humbling. This book right here, which has very, very, very deep theological waters, is just baby talk from God's perspective. God's revelation to us is baby talk. Now think about that. That's humbling. So as revelation is what God says, we want to distinguish revelation from theology or doctrine. And I'm going to use those two terms uh, interchangeably, theology or doctrine. Doctrine or theology is what we say about what God has said, about what God says in his word. It's our commentary. Theology and doctrine is, is just our commentary. It's our opinion. It's our reflection. It's our meditation upon what God says. It's our commentary, our opinion, our reflection, our meditation on God's baby talk. We are babies trying to comment on God's baby talk. Think about that and be humbled. We're just babies trying to comment on God's baby talk that he has accommodated in coming to us. So doctrine or theology is a human thing. Doctrine and theology uh, is a human thing. It's a human action. So notice the distinction between the two. And maybe you remember, does anybody remember watching The Electric Company growing up? It was on PBS. Anybody remember that? Do you remember the little word silhouettes that used to be on Electric Company? You have these two people here. Those are very terrible people, and I'm an artist. <laughs> you have these two people who would say things like doctrine. They were teaching. They would say actually words like burning or fishing, and then one half of the word would come, and then the last half of the word, okay? It's kind of what we're doing here when we're thinking about doctrine and theology. We want to distinguish and, and show the distinction between the two. So who is the subject acting on the verb to say in Revelation? Who is the subject acting on the word to say in Revelation? God is, right? God, God is the one who's doing the speaking in Revelation, right? Revelation is a God thing. He's doing the action in Revelation. He's the one lisping like a nurse who is wont to do with children, like Calvin said. But who is the subject acting on the verb to say in doctrine and in theology? Well, we are. This is us. We're the ones who are doing the action here. Doctrine and theology is a human thing. It's something humans do. It's our saying about what God has said, our reflection about what God has revealed. So, revelation is a God thing. God does revelations and humans do theology and doctrine. So when a pastor stops reading the Bible and says, this is what this means, he is moved from revelation to doctrine, from revelation to theology. So when I'm preaching, you will hear me say, hear the word of the Lord. And I read scripture. That's revelation. Then I start saying other things, and that's doctrine. That's theology. I move from a divine word to a human word. Notice the distinction. Because I quoted the Beatles today. And the last time I checked, the Beatles are not in the Bible. Okay? So I, I moved from revelation to doctrine or to theology. But there's another way to distinguish doctrine from theology. Revelation is... Inerrant. Revelation is inerrant. That's what you hear evangelicals say about God's word, right? The inerrancy of scripture. Revelation is inerrant. What does inerrant mean? What inerrant mean? What does inerrancy mean? No mistakes. No errors. Nothing false. Notice we use, this is a negative word. Just like Finite. We like to do this. Anytime you see the N on a word, it's uh, inerrant, which means it is not, there's no error, nothing false. It's not false. We see this with the word immortal. Same way, just with M's. Immortal. You put the M on the front, and it means God is what? Not mortal. Not mortal. He is not like us. 
So here's what's so weird about this. We prefer a negative word for a positive concept. You ever thought about that? We have a negative word, inerrant, that we use to describe the positive aspects of God's word, that his word is true. Humans are weird, aren't we? Revelation is inerrant. It is true. We're using a negative word to describe the positive aspect about the Bible, that it is true and that it is absent from error. Therefore, Revelation has a, a one-way relationship with truth. God speaks and it can only be true. So Revelation has this one-way relationship with truth. When God speaks... It is always true. But theology and doctrine has a twofold relationship with truth. Let me ask you a question. Can I speak inerrantly? Yes. Now, we're tempted to say what? No. no because we've stuck inerrancy and attached it to the Bible. So our first reaction is maybe to think, no, you can't speak inerrantly. But... I can speak inerrantly, right? My name is Benjamin Magnus. Is that true? I am married to Heather Marie Magnus. Is that true? I hate mayonnaise and it comes from the devil. True. That's an inerrant statement. See, we're, we're actually we're getting, a, we're getting a step ahead of ourselves because now we've moved into interpretation, which we'll talk about in a minute. But see, we, we, we did interpretation with that statement on mayonnaise, didn't we? Okay? As a human being, I have the capacity, you have the capacity to speak inerrantly. We have the capacity to speak truth. But we also have the capacity to speak errantly, too. I have blue skin. True or false? false? False. I can do either. I can speak something that's true and inerrant, or I can speak something that is false or errant. So we have this twofold relationship where we can say things that are true or false, whereas God, when He speaks in Revelation, it is always and only true. So humans can produce what is both inerrant and errant. And this is what we will see as we study uh, church history. Again, we're just laying another foundation this week. Next week we'll move into looking at the early church in more detail. But we have to lay this foundation so that we understand why people were doing what they were doing throughout church history. And we'll be able to come back to these concepts and, and we'll see it very clearly. We will see that... What we say about God as we look through church history can be true and can be false. And so what we say and what our commentaries say, what our sermons say about what God says, what our Sunday school lessons say about what God has said in his word can be either true or false. So the Bible is always and only inerrant, right? We believe that here at Grace. The Bible is always and only inerrant. It is true. There are zero mistakes in it. Zero falsehood. So we distinguish revelation from theology by number one, who's doing the talking. Who's doing the talking is how we distinguish it. Number two, the relationship to truth. But we also distinguish revelation from theology by concepts like time. And progress. And development. We're going to see that in church history. How did the doctrine of the Trinity that was there, how did it develop? What was the last one I said? In history. This is how we distinguish theology from revelation. Because revelation is static. Right? Revelation, God's word is static. It's, it's not dynamic. It's not changing over time. Right? After you left church today and you brought your Bible here, you did not open it up and it did not change in the afternoon, did it? Okay? It's not changing. Revelation does not change. There is only one Bible, only one Old Testament, only one New Testament recognized by the church. We do not expect to wake up tomorrow and find 3 Corinthians added to the Bible, do we? We don't accept, uh, 
expect any additions to Revelation, any new books to the Bible. Why? Because Revelation is not in flux at all, is it? The Bible is not being written. It has been written. So the same book of Romans that you and I read, because it's the same book of Romans that Martin Luther read. The same book of Romans that you and I read, or, or it's the same book that, of Romans that Augustine and the heretic Pelagius were both reading. Both Augustine, we're going to see it, in, in, it'll be a while before we get there. We're going to see that both Augustine and Pelagius were both reading God's word. They were both reading the book of Romans. But what they each said about what God had said in his word was either true or false. Augustine spoke the truth and Pelagius spoke what was false about God and therefore we refer to him as a heretic. Now we're going to talk more about this next week. We like to throw that word around to anyone we disagree with, don't we? Conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians like to call other conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians heretics if they don't believe what they believe about a particular passage, right? So we're going to talk about heresy next week. But as we look back on church history, the church said Pelagius was a heretic because what he said about what God said in his word was not true. So the Bible is not changing during history. What changes is this, and here's what we were just talking about a minute ago. Here's what changes. Our interpretation of Scripture changes, right? What changes is our interpretation, our perspective, our contemplation, our meditation, our opinion is changing and progressing. Why? Because theology and doctrine is dynamic. It changes. That's why there are four major views of the end times. There were three major views until the 1830s, 1840s. Did you know that? There were only three major views of the end times until the 1830s or the 1840s. And then what is called dispensationalism was added to the list because doctrine and theology is more uh, fluid, right? Dispensationalism is the end times view that was popularized by the Left Behind books. If you read those when they were popular about 15 to 20 years ago. But dispensationalism is late to the party. But all people, whether whatever end time position that you hold, all people are reading the exact same text, the exact same verses, the exact same Bible, but coming up with different positions, different opinions. That's theology and that's doctrine. So theology changes, but revelation does not. Theology changes throughout church history, but the Bible doesn't. And so the issue is not finding a new book of the Bible as if we were to wake up tomorrow and find 3 Timothy. The issue is that we are all reading the text differently. The reader is the issue, not the text, right? Every single time we open up this book, the reader, we are the issue, not the text. So let me ask you. How many of you have changed the way you read scripture or a biblical text since you became a Christian? How many of you have changed your opinions on some verse or some passage? Look, all of you, right? You liberals, you changed your beliefs. You changed your theology, you liberals. How many of you have stayed the same in your beliefs about a particular verse or theological topic? All of us, I'm sure, right? See, the Bible stays the same, but we change. We change our opinions. We change our opinions of the end times. We change our opinions of baptism. We might change our opinions of the Lord's Supper. We might change our opinions whether women can preach in church. The Southern Baptist Church is having conversations about that right now. It's really heated up in their denomination. Can a woman preach in the Sunday morning service? There's changes taking place. Can a, what age can a person be baptized? We're going to see that as we look through church history. The age of the earth. All these things change in time. But Revelation, God's word, never changes. We're all reading the exact same text, but coming up with different ideas, different interpretations. So, doctrine in theology can be like a roller coaster, right? Doctrine and theology can be like a roller coaster because it's exciting. It's 
thrilling. You can go up and down. You can go here and there. You can go over and under. Your hair is blowing all over the place. You get butterflies in your stomach. You scream with joy. That's what doctrine and theology is like. It's roller coaster joy. But revelation is boring because it never changes. No new books are ever added. No new seasons on Netflix. No updates like the iPhone. It's boring. You can go to sleep and wake up and revelation is the same. Revelation never does anything exciting. It never dances. It never sings. Revelation never gets in a bar fight. Revelation never gets a tattoo. It never does anything worth being reported. It just kind of stays the same. It's kind of boring. Romans is always Romans. Isaiah is always Isaiah. Isaiah never dyes his hair purple. Very, very boring. The excitement is in doctrine. The excitement is in theology. But it's also where the danger is. It can be dangerous because what we say about what God has said can get us into trouble. We can say some things about what God has said in his word that aren't true. And church history is littered with people like this. So we want to look at them and use a mirror and say, I don't want to go down that path. That's why we have the Apostles' Creed. That's why we have the Nicene Creed. That's why the church met at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, because there were people saying things about what God had said that were not true. So doctrine and theology is like a roller coaster. It's thrilling. Good theology is thrilling. Good theology is exciting. Reading the Institutes by John Calvin is thrilling. Reading the Westminster Confession of Faith is exciting and worship inspiring. So is there excitement in doctrine and theology? You betcha. But it's also where the danger is. It's theology and doctrine that sometimes just can't stay still. It's theology and doctrine that sometimes squirms in its seat. And that means that it's extremely dangerous for you and me to be Protestant. Because sometimes Protestants don't know when to say, Whoa, slow down there, Padna. Easy does it, darling. Sometimes Protestants, with all their study Bibles, don't know how to say, theology, go home, you're drunk. Why? Because Protestants love coming up with new stuff, right? Protestants love coming up with new stuff, new ideas about God, new thoughts about God, and that's dangerous. Protestants love the word contemporary because Protestants love new stuff. Now, I mentioned this at the end of the class last week. Uh, You do know that to be a good evangelical, there are three terms that you have to love. And I use the word uh, evangelical loosely, okay, Uh, to describe us. The trinity of terms in evangelicalism is this. Number one, Practical. This is, we're going to talk about the trinity of terms that the evangelical church loves. Practical. Everything is measured by its practicality. If it ain't practical, we don't want it, right? That's the first term. That's the father in evangelical churchianity. Practical. Is it practical? Give me something practical. Make your sermons practical, pastor. Give me five ways to be a better husband. Five ways to be a better husband, pastor, because it's to be a father, pastor, because it's Father's Day. Tell me how to be a better father, pastor, because I don't know. I need something practical. Then, number two, we have contemporary that I just mentioned. This is the son 
in the trinity of evangelical churchianity. If it has shades of the past, we look down upon it, don't we? We want new, fresh ways of worshiping. Out with the old, in with the new. Tradition, we want contemporary. Why sing John Newton when you can sing Chris Tomlin? And then there's number three, which is relevant. This is the spirit in the trinity of evangelical churchianity. If it is not relevant, it is given a suspicious value in churches today. Hmm. I'm not sure reading Anselm is a good idea, so give us a book that's a little more relevant. So this is why we must be careful with these three terms. Because what is true may not be practical. Let me say that again. What is true may not be practical. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the truth of God's word will not seem practical to an unregenerate sinner who is dead in their sins and blinded by the God of this world, really. They'll look at this book and say, this thing is not practical to me. If we want to gauge truth on whether we... Whether or not we see its practicality, then we are crediting ourselves with the ability to see what we should be highly suspicious of. Because we were blinded by sin and the Spirit is progressively bringing us out of this darkness. Paul said we, through, we see through a glass how? Darkly, dimly, 1 Corinthians 13. Listen, if you can't see something's practicality, but it is still announced to you by revelation. The judge isn't whether or not you can see its practicality or not. The judgment call is, does the Bible say it? Now let me say that again. If you can't see something's practicality, but it is still announced to you by revelation, the judge isn't whether or not you can see its practicality. The judgment call is, does the Bible say it? You may think that the Lord's Supper is not practical, but does the Bible say it? What about baptism? You may think baptism isn't practical, but does God's word say it? What about weekly corporate worship? Sometimes corporate worship on Sunday morning doesn't feel very practical, does it? I have to be here because I work here. <laughs> and I still feel that way. So, I mean, that, that, that tells me at least some of you think, yeah, it's not very practical today, right? Sometimes Pismo Beach and Old West Cinnamon Rolls sounds really practical on Sunday mornings, right? But practicality is not a litmus test for truth. For so many churches today, it is. Practicality is not a litmus test for truth. It doesn't matter if it's contemporary or not because the Holy Spirit is no more interested in the 21st century than he was interested in the 5th century. The Holy Spirit is not associated anymore with this age than the one before. Contemporary means absolutely nothing to the Holy Spirit. The important thing for the Holy Spirit is, is it in this book? And the same goes for relevance. If you say that it must be relevant... In order for it to be true, then you become the judge of truth. The question becomes, and it's what the early church wrestled with. The question becomes, is it in the book? If it's in the Bible, then it is practical. If it's in the Bible, then it is contemporary. If it's in the Bible, then it is relevant. We don't make the judgment call on what is practical, contemporary, and relevant. The Spirit does. The Bible does. Because revelation never changes. Our theology, our doctrine, our interpretation will undergo change. Okay? Where have you changed your theology? Where has your interpretation of Scripture changed over the years? Anybody? Anybody's end time view changed from when they first became a Christian? Anybody? You can just raise your hand. Okay. Anybody? Name another issue. 
Marianne? I did when I first got saved. I thought that you could lose your salvation if you okay. go so far, you know, just cut you off. Thought you could lose your salvation? Can you change that over time? Anybody else? Anything particular that you've changed your theology on, Byron? Dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. You moved on to something else or moved to that? Yeah, okay, yeah. So we're, we're, we're changing. Our, our theology and our beliefs and our doctrine is changing. The book never changes. Now, let me ask you, and let's talk about this. What forces shape our, our interpretation? What forces shape us maybe at the beginning of our Christian walk? And then what forces maybe later shape us later on to cause us to change our opinion about particular things? What forces tie together our interpretation of Scripture? What forces shape how we interpret the Bible or cause us to change? So let's talk about that. What forces shape our theology? What forces shape our beliefs? What are some of the things that cause us to believe what we believe? Methods of interpretation. Okay. Methods of interpretation. Hermeneutics. What's that? Preaching. Preaching. Listening to a certain preacher you can change, right? Reading the Bible. Reading the Bible can cause us to change. Family, depends on what kind of family you grew up in, right? What's that? The culture. The culture changing. The culture can definitely shape and change. We're seeing that in our world today. Uh, Church upbringing, experience, tradition, these are all things that shape us along our journey to the city that is to come. So let's tease this out for just a minute. Let's do an experiment in interpretation. Does the Bible really say that the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword? Does the Bible say that the Bible, Old and New Testaments, is sharper than any two-edged sword? Or does anybody know the passage? It's a trick question, okay? Let me warn you. (laughs) Hebrews 3, what's it say? Specifically any or any or a a sword or any sword? Well, there, we're doing interpretation. <laughs> yeah, okay. So Hebrews chapter 4 um, says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, in the context of the book of Hebrews, is the preacher of Hebrews talking about the Bible? Or is he talking about someone else? Who might he be talking about? Well, let me tip you off. Back in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The subject of the first three chapters of Hebrews is the Son of God. It's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the subject of the first three chapters of Hebrews is the Son of God, how God has spoken to us by his son. It's not about the Bible per se, not to say that God's word isn't sharp and doesn't you know, cut and divide, but in the context, it's a Christological passage. It's talking about Jesus being the word of God who can pierce and divide. But most of us have probably been taught that this is the Bible. Right? He's talking about the Bible. Yes, we would agree that yes, the Bible is sharper than any double-edged sword and and cuts and divides. But in the context, we're talking about the Son of God. Where else in Scripture do we see Jesus referred to as the Word? John John. John chapter 1. Yeah. So see, we have been taught and we kind of catch stuff through our own reading through other people that kind of informs and shapes our interpretation of the Bible. So sometimes you just kind of read Hebrews chapter 4 and, yeah, chapter 4 and think, oh, it's talking about the Bible. When in the context, it's talking about Jesus the Son of God, who is the Word of God. So, just doing an experiment here with us to help us see how we can catch these things that shape our thinking through the years. And sometimes you have to just kind of pull back and say, is that what it says? Here's another example. Where two or more are gathered. Who said that? Who said those words? Where two or more are gathered, I will be with you. Jesus did. Okay? Where do we typically apply that passage. Mm-hmm. Prayer meetings. 
You show up at a prayer meeting, only three people show up. Well, listen here, brother. Jesus said where two or more are gathered, I will be there with you. He is with us here right now. Don't be discouraged. There's just three of us. But Jesus is here. All those losers wouldn't show up, but Jesus showed up. Because he said when two or three are gathered, I will be there. But what's Jesus talking about in Matthew 18? Is he talking about a prayer meeting? Church discipline. Going to the brother. Okay. See, these are some of the things that we just kind of catch through time and find ourselves saying. And when you go back and read it, you're like, he's not even talking about a prayer meeting there, right? I remember doing this in high school with a group of Christian, Christians who gathered. And a couple of us showed up and I said, hey, guys, Jesus, don't be discouraged, man. Like two or three of us here, man, but Jesus is here with us because he said this. He did say that, but that's not what he was talking about, Benji Magnus. So there are forces that shape our theology, preachers and books and denominations and tradition and family and heritage. And all of these forces influence how we read the Bible. And that's what we need to keep asking ourselves as we look at church history. How are all of these influences and forces shaping the way the early church formed its theology? And what we're going to see as we go on this journey through church history is sometimes they got it right. And we need to listen to them. They need to correct our thinking. And that's why studying church history is beneficial. We get help from our brothers and sisters in Christ from other centuries. And then sometimes we're going to see they got it wrong. Sometimes the church and church history got it all wrong. Well, what did you expect? They are sinners, right? (laughs) So we will be challenged and this will be an uncomfortable class for us because we will have to consider positions and beliefs that we may have never considered once. We'll be challenged to consider the validity of some of our own beliefs that may not be as scriptural as we thought. Or they might be and they might reinforce what we believe. So church history is a wonderful playing field on which to consider our values and our beliefs. And to understand that some things that we believe and value are more cultural than biblical, they're more evangelical churchianity than they are the Bible, even though they've been handed down to us by pastors who said that they were biblical. Well-meaning people who've handed things down to us that they said were biblical that may or may not have been. So in everything that we do, this is what we use. You, you use interpretation today. I don't know if you noticed that. You'll use it tomorrow. And that's what I hope you see in this class is that in everything that we do, we use interpretation. When you read the newspapers, you are making interpretations. When you read the Bible, you are making interpretations. When you get on social media, you use interpretation. For you married people, what about in your marriage? Is there any interpretation going on in your marriage? Yeah? Guys? Guys, you better learn to interpret. What does that look mean? What does it mean when she walks away? What does it mean when she goes into the room and shuts the door in the middle of our conversation? You better learn how to interpret those things. There's interpretation going on in your marriage. Okay? We interpret body language. We interpret words. We interpret tone of voice. And so hermeneutics is the key player in everything that we do. What is hermeneutics? Here's another $5 theological word for you. Did I spell that right? E-U? Yeah, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the interpretation of the Bible. You may not know that big theological word, but you do it every time you read your Bible, and every time you watch the news, and every time you hop on social media... So in this class, we're, we're trying to come to an understanding of what has been written, what has been said, even body language we're using interpretation. We're always interpreting, always engaging in hermeneutics. And as we saw last week, we always bring prejudices and presuppositions to every passage of the Bible that we read. So hermeneutics is the key player in everything that we do.
We interpret the inspired word of God, and that's what the early church was trying to do. We'll get into it later when we discuss how the New Testament was formed and formalized. But what do we do with interpretation, especially when someone's interpretation goes against Scripture? What do we do then? What if someone claims that the Lord spoke to them? Does God speak after the close of the New Testament canon? Do we want to say that what someone might perceive as personal revelation, do we want to say that it is inerrant and as authoritative as the canon? Inerrant and as authoritative as the Bible? Because in the Bible, in Revelation, everything that God says is what? True. God doesn't speak in degrees of truth. He doesn't speak in degrees of authority. He doesn't speak in degrees of clarity. It's all true. It's all authority. It's completely true. So do we want to say that when someone says God spoke to me, do we want to say that that is as authoritative as what God spoke to Isaiah? And we need to think more clearly about what we mean when we say the Lord spoke to me. Now, if you read John 3.16 out loud, then I give you permission to say, God just spoke to me. If you read God's word out loud, I give you permission to say, God spoke to me. Okay? So we need to be careful about the language that we use. Maybe what kind of words should we say then? Instead of saying, God spoke to me. Maybe, any ideas? Moved me. He moved me? Yes. Gave me an impression? Things kind of are moving in this way, and I think perhaps God is leading me or guiding me in this way. But we have to be careful in saying, God spoke to me, because we... I got a question for you, though. You said after the canon, but people put the canon together. They did. Were they in there? Well, they better have been. They better have been. <laughs> We're all in trouble. <laughs> right? So, I mean, God spoke to them. In, in some way, or, or he, did he lead and guide and move? Yeah, exactly. yeah. at some point we're going to see, we're going to have to say that we trust in the God who moved and guided and led people to put together what we know as the New Testament. The Old, the Old Testament canon was already in place by the time of Jesus, but even then we're still, prior to Jesus speaking and saying, you've heard in Moses and the prophets in the writings, prior to Jesus speaking, the community of faith had to believe that what they had collected was the word of God, right? So, so, we're not, so what's happening with the New Testament at some time happened in the Old Testament. Now, we can look back at what Jesus says about the Old Testament and say, see, it's true. What they collected was true. But prior to Jesus, the community of faith is still saying we have this collection of writings, uh, you know, the law, the prophets, and the writings... And that's what we believe is truth. And then when Jesus comes along, he mentions those. And so you know then, okay, Jesus said they're true. So the community of faith had to trust that God was working and putting together the, the, the collective books of the Old Testament. And then when we get into church history, it's going to take us trusting that God was working and saying, these are the books that the church decided at some point this is the final canon and we don't get 3 Corinthians tomorrow. Even though there was a, uh, there was a, there were two other Corinthian letters that Paul wrote and if they surface today, okay, we know that Paul wrote two other letters to the Corinthians. So the first and second Corinthians that we have is really second and fourth Corinthians. Because Paul wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians, and he wrote a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. So what do we do tomorrow if we wake up and say, we found these other two letters that Paul wrote to Corinth? You get rich. You get rich. <laughs> are we going to stick them in the Bible? We're not going to stick them in the Bible, are we? Okay, so at some point we're saying, we're, we're, we're trusting that God was working through his people to put the New Testament canon together and say this is, that, that letter doesn't belong 
that gospel, there were a lot of gospels being written at that time, and the church said no, okay? And you, one of the key uh, things that caused the early church to say no to other gospels is they didn't have a bloody, brutal death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. And that was one litmus test for them is you got no cross. You don't have a cross, you don't have a gospel. That one's got to go. Okay, I don't care how well it's written. I don't care if you use footnotes instead of endnotes. That thing is not going to be in the New Testament canon because you don't have Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and raising again on the third day. But at some point, we have to trust that God was working in his people when they decided this is the New Testament canon. This is God's word and it's close. Just like we're going to have to trust that uh, what happens in all of the councils throughout church history. We're going to have to trust that all those who got together and decided on this, that what they wrote down and said was true. Now, do we take what they said and place it above Revelation? No. Okay. Do we take the Nicene Creed and cling to it more than we cling to Scripture? No. Okay. But we're going to look at the Nicene Creed and say, that is solid. That's solid theology that you can stand on. And if you're going to pick between Joel Osteen and the Nicene Creed, even though Joel Osteen is more practical, even though Joel Osteen is more contemporary, even though Joel Osteen is more relevant, trust me, you want to go back in time, in a time machine, to the Nicene Creed, and you want to build your life on the truth that is in that theology and not the truth that is in something Joel Osteen says or anybody else who's on cable TV any other prosperity preacher? Question for you. When did the Catholics add the Apocrypha to the Old Testament? When did they add it? I'm going I'm to go back to what I said last week. Right now, I would say, I don't know. I'll have to look that up. Okay. Yeah. Not sure. What was the question? When did, you... when did the Catholic Church add the Apocrypha to the Old Testament? Yeah. We're going to see... Uh, as we look and see how the bishops worked leading up to, and we're going to kind of see uh, the break that happens there and, and why the Catholic Church says, hey, we can trace everything back to Peter, but that's still a few more weeks out. Next week, we're going to look at, hopefully, Acts, from, about from the, uh, the book of Acts to maybe uh, the end of the first century, so 99 A.D., um, 100 A.D. So we'll kind of look at the first century there next week. We're going to talk about um, heresy. We're going to talk about orthodoxy. What is a heretic? Who decides who a heretic is? What is orthodox truth? We're going to look at persecution. What did the early church look like? Leading up, and then when we finally get back on July 14th, we'll probably pick up with Ignatius uh, of Antioch and learn about what the early church was dealing with in 105, 6, 7 AD, around there, and we'll start talking about what uh, Athanasius, uh, I mean, uh, Ignatius was dealing with, and we'll look at First Clement, a letter that was written to, to the Church of Corinthians. So you do end up having another letter in early 100 AD something. You have a letter, a very long letter, being written to the church that Paul wrote to, but they don't stick that in the New Testament canon. When the time comes, and let me tell you, it is loaded with scripture, and yet they still don't stick it in there. So there's some, they're making some, uh, some uh, calls early on about what is scripture and what isn't, and they don't include First Clement, even though it's full of scripture. So any other final questions or comments? I might say I don't know. So Carl, you have to remind me to. Yeah, to it's that kind out. of interesting because I mean, Paul quotes from. Yeah. In the New Testament, you go. What's he doing quoting from the Apocrypha? Yeah. Why? Yeah. And, and then he quotes in, uh, is it in Titus he quotes a poet? And in Acts he quotes someone? So Paul was pretty well read, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Read it. Yeah. Obviously he read it and it got put in scripture. Right. Yeah. So we know part of the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of leads us then. That's, it's actually great because it kind of leads us then to... Uh, as we, as we close out here, special revelation and general revelation. What is special revelation? It, salvation. Salvation. It's, it's God speaking through what? His word. 
Special revelation is God speaking through his word, speaking through the Old Testament, speaking through the New Testament. Uh, general revelation is God speaking through his world. So we have special revelation. God is speaking through his word, the Old and New Testaments. And then general revelation, God is speaking through his world. You look outside, Romans chapter 1, look outside, look at the trees, look at the sky, look at the beach. You should be able to figure out that there is a creator behind all of this. But general revelation is not enough to save, is it? Because what does man do with general revelation? What does Paul say in Romans 1? Suppress it. Suppress it, and then what? Make? Make? Yeah. You look at that tree, and you're like, hey, there's God. Let's worship it. You look at Pismo Beach, and you say, hey, who wants to go to church on Sunday morning? That's not practical. Let's go to the beach, and you worship it, right? Not that you guys do that. But mankind looks at creation and worships it. And so if you give a man a sunrise, what's he going to do with it? He's going to worship it. Trees become idols. So without special revelation, God revealing himself through his word, specifically God revealing himself through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, then general revelation is completely ambiguous. General revelation needs to be complemented by Special revelation. Otherwise, you'll just end up making idols. That's how desperately wicked the human heart is. That left alone with just general revelation will make idols out of everything. That's why we need special revelation. That's why we need, as you mentioned earlier in John chapter 1, we need the word becoming flesh. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Yes, we're still without excuse, but it's insufficient for salvation. So yes, they are. Romans 1, Paul says we are without excuse. You should at least been able to connect the dots by going outside and saying there's a God. But like Nathan said, what do we do with that knowledge? We suppress that knowledge. Okay? We look at the tree and say there must be a God, and we're like, well, I don't like that. So I'm going to say, la, 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 la. I want to suppress that truth. I look at the beach and the, go to the beach and look at the ocean and say, somebody must have made this because the government couldn't tax the people enough to make something this glorious. So there must be a creator. And so what do I have to do? Well, I don't want to think about there being a creator because that probably means that I will be held accountable in my actions. And so la, 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 la. I'd rather not think about that. And then I then suppress the truth. And we all do that. The old Adam is still there, and that's why we need the Spirit who's bringing us out of all of this darkness and the old ways and slowly changing us and transforming us. Okay, thank you guys for coming. We'll be back next week, and we'll kind of pick up in the book of Acts and take us, Lord willing, all the way to the end of the first century. So thanks for staying with me as we build this foundation. Uh, somebody close us in prayer. Thank you, Carl. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get together, and we thank you for each and every person's taking time to be here, especially for Benji for his time and preparation. God, I pray you would continue to work with him, anoint him with your spirit, allow him to share with us the things he knows, God, and we thank you for that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See you guys next week.